As the children leave, let me pray for them and let me pray for us as we stay and study God's word. Father, we know that every life in this room is precious to you, um, and especially the lives of these young ones. Lord, we, uh, Jesus, you said that their angels always look upon the face of your Father in heaven, and I pray that you would protect them today, that you would um, preserve the faith that is in them, that you would fan it into flame, and that you would lay a foundation for a life of following you, Lord. Please bless us also. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit as we encounter your word this morning. Please feed us and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been asked a couple of times in the last month whether I grew up in Tallahassee. Um, and the answer is no, I did not. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of London, uh, in a quiet rural town. Uh, and it was far from the bright lights of the city, but it was close enough that we could just jump on a train and take a 45-minute ride in and enter this vastly different world. Uh, city life, where the abundant panoply of the earth was crowded in together. So I remember emerging from the subway and seeing soaring glass skyscrapers next to crouching medieval churches. Businessmen in thousand-dollar suits striding past beggars in doorways. The air full of the smells of exotic foods from around the globe, mingled with car exhaust and garbage and cigarette smoke and the sidewalks crammed with people from a hundred nations, wearing every color of the rainbow and speaking loudly to one another in a hundred different languages. The city is a thrilling place, isn't it? It's exciting, it's overwhelming, just like any big city. And I remember as I went into London all those times that into that noise and hubbub, the gospel of Jesus was always being proclaimed. It was always being shouted, often, uh, sometimes clearly and well, and sometimes not so well. Uh, but I think that pretty much every time I went into the city of London, I heard the gospel in one way or another. I especially remember this one weird guy uh, that I saw several times. He, he was usually hanging around Oxford Circus with a megaphone and wearing a sandwich board which said, turn or burn. Um, I'm guessing that most of you have seen a guy like that somewhere. Uh, this guy was obnoxious. He would shout at people through his megaphone as they passed him on the street. And whenever my family saw him, we would cross over the street to avoid him. Uh, every time I saw that guy, I wondered, what good is that ever going to do? How many people have repented and come to faith in Jesus because they were shouted at down a megaphone? I mean, seriously, it really gives evangelism a bad name. And if you're like me, it might have contributed to putting you off evangelism altogether for a while. So we might be tempted just to ignore those megaphone evangelists and write them off as bad eggs. But then we open up our Bibles and we bump straight into John the Baptist. And he seems on the surface to be eerily like those guys, doesn't he? He's wild and fierce and shouty and rude, and he repeats a message about hellfire. If you could have any Bible character over to your house for dinner, I doubt that any of us would pick John the Baptist. Um, and yet we know that our Lord Jesus praised him and said, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So I want to wrestle this morning with the difficult personality of John the Baptist as we meet him in Luke chapter 3. So let's turn there now in our Bibles. Luke chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 7. 
Luke chapter 3, and we're looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the third witness to the coming Christ on our Advent wreath here. And today I want to wrestle with just how difficult of a person John is. First, because his message was so blunt. Second, because his manner was so fierce. And third, because this was the guy the Prince of Peace chose to be his herald. Um, So first, let's think about John and that his message was so blunt. So people were coming to John in the desert to be baptized. They were making the arduous trek out into the desert to find him. And when they finally got there, this is how John greeted them in verse 7. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then if we continue down at verse 16, John said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that's basically the sum of John's message. And what does it boil down to? It's turn or burn, right? Uh, It's it's uncomfortably close to the megaphone preacher. Like verse 8, John calls for repentance, and that means turning. And his alternative in verse 9, and again in verse 17, is fire. So he's basically saying turn or burn. And not only is that the heart of John's message, it's basically all of it. At least all that we get recorded in any of the four Gospels. Um, It's that plus the promise uh, or warning that the Messiah is at the gates. So I think we can legitimately imagine John wearing a turn or burn sandwich board. Um, But maybe it would be a little more accurate to label it fruit or fire. Because the language of bearing fruit is more prominent in his message than just the turning. So let's look at that. John commands the people in verse 8 to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In verse 9, the axe comes to the trees that do not bear good fruit. And in verse 17, the Messiah is not only looking to burn the chaff, but also to gather the wheat, which is again another fruit metaphor. So the Messiah is coming, and John's call is for God's people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if they don't, fruitless trees can expect to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So fruit or fire is probably what his sandwich board would say. So if fruit is the main criteria for avoiding fire, then we've got to understand what kind of fruit John is talking about. What is the fruit that comes from repentance? And thankfully, we don't have to wonder because other people who were there at the time came up and asked him, what should we do? What should we do about this? And John gave them replies. So first of all, to the general crowds, he said, um, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Then second, tax collectors asked him the same question, what should we do? And the answer was, collect no more than you were authorized to do. And then third, soldiers asked him the same question, and the the answer was, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. All right, so these then are what John means by the fruits of repentance. They're practical, and they're also quite simple. And the three examples give us a very consistent pattern, don't they? We can join those three points into a straight line. 
And from that straight line, we can know exactly what John is talking about. The fruits in keeping with repentance all have to do with relationships. They're all about how one person relates to another, especially how they relate across a power differential or a privilege differential. Even more specifically, how it should work going down that power or privilege differential. So it's the haves to the have-nots, the tax collector to the taxpayer, and the soldier to the citizen. And the bottom line in every case is do kindly and justly to the people who lie at your mercy. It's extremely simple. Um, so we can extend that straight line from those three points, and we could know pretty much exactly what John the Baptist would say, whoever came up and asked him the same question. So if a school teacher came up and said, John, what should I do? John would say, teach your children the truth with gentleness and with patience, wouldn't he? And if a judge came and asked John, John, what should I do? John would say, judge your cases fairly, according to the law, without harshness, accepting no bribery, and showing no partiality. If a policeman came, John would say, serve and protect with gentleness and with firmness, treating all people equally with dignity and respect. And if a doctor came, John would say, give each patient as much attention as you can and as much care as you can. It's dead simple, right? <laughs> the fruits of repentance seem easily within reach. So let's think, what would John say to your profession? If you imagine asking him that question, I think you'll have the answer within seconds. So maybe it would be a good exercise to go home today and write that answer down and reflect on it. And the chances are that if you do that and if you assess how you're doing against that standard, then it's going to humble you. It's going to humble you. You won't be doing as well as you would have wanted to, even though it's dead simple. Because what John is uncovering here in the Fruits of Repentance is the basic idea of love. The call to be decent to the poor is really the call of love. And so John gets at the very heart of our problem, our sin problem, is that we're really just not very loving. We love the idea of love. Maybe we even love love. But when it comes to actually loving the real person in front of me, we discover that our own love is very small and it's easily toppled by selfishness, laziness, and indifference. So we can't bear the fruits of repentance by ourselves. And we arrive, therefore, at the conclusion that we need a savior. Even more than that, we need God the Holy Spirit to come live inside us, to teach us to love, and to give us the power to love. So John is preparing the way for that Messiah to come. He's exposing the need that only Jesus can fill. And he also gives a teaser to this crowd of the hope that is coming in verse 16. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Thank goodness, because <laughs> that's what's going to be needed before we can bear the necessary fruit. So notice that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a different kind of fire that's coming for the ones who repent. There's a good kind of fire. There's a purifying kind, full of transformative power. John's message points to hope in the end, but you have to dig a little for it. And on the surface, it remains a tough message, a message of fruit or fire. John carried one of the bluntest and least compromising messages in the whole Bible. And now second, his manner of delivering it was also very fierce, wasn't it? Uh, in this way too, John kind of reminds us of the London megaphone preacher, doesn't he? Just kind of shouting at people. Verse 7, John said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Uh, if you glance ahead to verse 18, it, it summarizes John's teaching and says, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. <laughs> and you end up feeling, really? This was good news? Being called a brood of vipers? I'd hate to hear John deliver bad news. Um, but yes, it, it is good news, isn't it? And here's why. Because John's fierce words were really only for comfortable, self-satisfied people who needed to be shaken out of their self-righteousness or die in it. So they are the urgent screaming of a mother whose child is running toward an interstate highway. But when it came to people who already felt unworthy, John had words of comfort and encouragement. So on the one hand, the brood of vipers were the Jewish leaders in good standing, the scribes and Pharisees, the people who thought that they were all that, that they were righteous. They cared nothing about the poor. They treated lepers and foreigners with contempt, and they thought they were on good terms with God because Abraham was their father. So what they did is they put on their best clothes, and they gathered their household of servants, and they paraded out into the desert to hear John pat them on the back and tell them how wonderful they were. Lip service to the prophet was really an exercise in self-congratulation, but boy, were they in for the shock of their lives to be called a brood of vipers, prepared for wrath and ready to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Nevertheless, how else was anyone going to get through to them? And John had words of mercy for them too, along with his harsh words. A way forward, he had a way of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And we know historically that some of them really did listen to John. They became followers, disciples first of John and then of Jesus. So John's fierceness was the cold water that was needed to wake some of them up and save them. It was a severe mercy. And in that way, it was good news. But now, on the other hand, look at the way John treated tax collectors in verse 12 and then soldiers in verse 14. Remember who these guys were. Tax collectors were people who were like Zacchaeus. They were Jewish traitors. They had made a pact with Rome to extort money from their own Jewish people in order to line Rome's pockets. And the very act of collecting Roman taxes was viewed by some Pharisees as treason against God and his people. So these tax collectors came to John to ask what they should do. Now notice what John didn't say. He didn't say on the one hand, get lost you wretched traitors, there's no hope for you. He didn't say, well you first you've got to find another job. Instead he said that they could be acceptable to God while still being tax collectors. As long as they started doing that job earnestly and honestly. So the situation with the soldiers was similar because these probably weren't Roman soldiers. The Greek word that's used here is never used of Roman soldiers. Um, so they're probably Jewish soldiers who were either working for the Roman army or were part of the temple guard. But either way, their situation was compromised by the presence of Rome. They had the power to extort and mistreat people because of the Roman army. And in fact, they were actively encouraged to do that. Um, and John doesn't say that their case is hopeless. He doesn't tell them to get a new job. Instead, they too can be faithful to God and bear fruit in keeping with repentance right where they are. So I think we see that John is surprisingly fierce with the proud people who came to him, but he's also surprisingly gentle with the ones with troubled consciences. And what he does for them is he gives them a way of life, a way of hope, a way to bear fruit in keeping with repentance where they are, something they can really do. And that, I think, really is good news for them. That's a word of life, isn't it? 
So, this morning, maybe some of you are here this morning and you feel ashamed for one reason or another. You feel too dirty for God. And you feel that you would never be accepted. Maybe because of what you've done. Because of some laws that you've broken or the vows that you've betrayed or the lives that you've ended by your negligence or by your deliberate choice. Or maybe you feel that you will not be accepted because of who you are. Because of the label that the world has slapped on you. As a failure or as something broken or as something ruined beyond repair. And you think, I know that God would not welcome me. He would not be glad to see me. But friend, you are wrong. You are wrong. Even fierce John the Baptist, the harshest man in the Bible, did not send away the tax collectors or the soldiers. He sent away no one. And neither would he send you away. Because the love of God runs out on no one. You cannot sin your way out of his delight or have it stolen from you by abuse or ill health or deformity or unwanted desires or anything else. Your father always wants you back wherever you've been, whatever you've done. And he will do anything to get you back, even to the extent of sending his own son to the cross. Your father wants you back. So he can love you and comfort you and heal you and unsay the damaging words the world has spoken over you. So you might be afraid to draw near to God because he seems fierce. A little bit like John. And in a way, he is fierce. His love is fierce. His holiness is fierce. As C.S. Lewis said of Aslan, he's not a tame lion. But underneath, he is deeply good and kind. He will not kill you. He will restore you to life. So the message of John had some fierceness in it to the proud to wake them from sleep, but also a surprisingly gentle message to the downtrodden. And in this way, too, John prepared the way of the Lord. So finally, let's wrestle with the reality that this was the way that the Prince of Peace chose to be heralded by the wild and fiery figure of John the Baptist. (laughs) Surprising, isn't it? Uh, Because Jesus, when we meet him, looks very different to John. What we find Jesus doing is forgiving sins, laying hands on lepers to heal them, comforting widows, drying their tears, raising their sons to life, and weeping over the tomb of his friend Lazarus. So on the surface, Jesus looks nothing like John. Um, But then when we look at Jesus' life more deeply, we find that there's nothing that John says that Jesus didn't also say. Jesus, too, calls for repentance. Jesus often talked about hell and warned that self-righteous leaders were on the path that led there. And Jesus called those leaders names like hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, serpents, and vipers. So there's nothing in John's ministry that Jesus didn't later affirm and echo. But in Jesus, the message is rounded out with a whole lot of love and gentleness that is much less obvious with John. So you might still find John the Baptist an unattractive character. But we've got to remember that Jesus chose John. Of all the people that could have been his herald, his messenger sent to prepare the way before him, Jesus chose John. 
And he was pleased with John. He called John the greatest man who had yet been born. So then what do we learn about Jesus from the fact that he chose John? And I think the main lesson is that we see the supreme importance of humility. Because the proud and arrogant were never going to accept their Messiah. They were never going to recognize him. And I think we see that self-righteousness is the worst form of blindness. And therefore, the best way to prepare for the Messiah's coming was a zealous, wild-haired, fiery prophet with an urgent message of warning. There are lots of voices in the Bible, and some of them sound fierce, especially some of the Old Testament prophets. But all of those prophets balance out their fierce words with outstanding promises of peace and restoration and hope and beauty. But John really doesn't do that. So on balance, John arguably carried the harshest message in the whole Bible. Um, And we can see that the last note before the Messiah came wasn't a trumpet voluntary or a flash mob choir or the sound of rapturous applause. The last sound before the Messiah came was an air raid siren, wasn't it? It was the urgent sound of wake up or die. So I think it should leave us asking ourselves today, are we awake? Have we woken up? Have we woken up to the reality that wickedness has been given a time to flourish on earth unchecked, but that time is rapidly drawing to an end, and judgment is coming? Have we woken up to the reality that we ourselves will be judged by a holy God on whether we have participated in the world's godless wickedness and were complicit in the downtreading of the weak and the poor? Have we woken up to the reality that we absolutely have participated in it and have shown nothing like the love that we were designed for or that God calls for and that we are therefore in desperate need of salvation, of rescue, of rebirth into a new life that looks nothing like the way of the world that we walked before? And have we determined in every fiber of our being to renounce that old way and to walk in newness of life? Will we, therefore, in that spirit of humility, kneel before God and acknowledge that he is far greater than we are, far greater in his being, that he is the eternal creator and we are mortal creatures, but also far greater in his character, that he is good and we are not. Are we humble enough even to kneel in a dirty stable at the bedside of a baby in a manger? Because then and only then will we be ready for Christmas. So I think in the end, that megaphone preacher in London deserves at least a little bit of credit in my life for waking me up. Because after all, I still remember him (laughs) and his fiery message. I don't remember much else that was preached to me as a kid, but I remember him. And today, I don't fundamentally disagree with his message or with his urgent drive to share it. And perhaps we could say that he could still learn a lot more from Jesus and from John the Baptist about his methods. Perhaps we can all evaluate him critically, pull out books and statistics and point to better, gentler, more effective and more lasting evangelistic methods. And if we're doing those things, then great. But otherwise, I like his method of doing evangelism better than your method of not doing it. The only truly terrible way to preach Jesus is to say nothing. 
The bluntness of that guy's message reflected the truth of our situation, just like John the Baptist. And I'll take him over every other liberal British and German theologian in the 20th century who softened the word of God to make it comfortable for wicked people. And that guy's fierce urgency also reflected the truth of our situation, just like John the Baptist. And I'd rather be woken up with a bucket full of ice water in my face than drift off to hell comfortably asleep. So if we are awake now, then let's get busy waking others. Try to do it wisely and well, kindly, patiently, with personal integrity and on the strength of personal relationships. But if it's a choice between doing it poorly and not doing it at all, then please go ahead and share Jesus poorly. He could use that. He can come on the scene later and fill out the picture that John the Baptist has started. But he needs an awake person to work with. So Christians, this Christmas, as you go home to family or welcome in old friends, who can you tell? Who needs to hear the message that Jesus is coming before it's too late? Amen.